So this morning, Luke 14, we're going to begin in verse 25 and read through the end of the chapter as our text this morning. Uh, I was considering uh, where we're going to start with this. One of the things we were talking this morning, we were talking about children uh, and essentially how much they cost to have children. Uh, But the the thing about children is to, to get a child is essentially free. It doesn't, you don't have to, you, you know how it works. Have a child is free. But then afterwards, when that child comes, boy, does it cost. There is a great deal of cost which follows afterwards having children. And in part, that illustration is a little bit like what we see Jesus teaching us here about being a disciple and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ here in Luke chapter 14. Now, last week, when we went through the previous verses, verse 25 through verse, uh, or verse, uh, sorry, 15 through verse 24, we saw Jesus giving uh, um, a parable about a banquet, a great banquet. And if you didn't hear that, that is up on the internet now. I'm trying to be more consistent in doing that, so you can find it on, uh, on our website there, all the, the recent ones there. But Jesus was inviting, a, a, giving an invitation through this parable of this great banquet where he was talking about how he is inviting people to salvation. And part of it was the, the Jews in their pride were rejecting this invitation because of what they thought they deserved and what they thought they had. And so Jesus says the invitation now goes out to, to all those who are unworthy, who think they're not, not uh, able to have such great Grace, uh, It is a gift of grace, this invitation to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. Um, and so this parable of the banquet is, a, is a, a picture, is a story about how Jesus is inviting us to know the bounty of his glory. But now as we come into verse 25, although sometimes we look at this and think Jesus is switched, it's really a continuation of the same invitation. So where Jesus before has been talking in these verses before about inviting people into salvation, he's continuing that same thought here in these verses from verse 25. So let's, let's read these last verses of chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. It says, Now, great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Lest, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple." Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we pray indeed that we would have ears to hear and hearts to obey, that we would find the joy and satisfaction of being a disciple of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when you come to Jesus, so Jesus has given this story to invite us to uh, his salvation and to find the abundance and the blessing and the glory of what it is to know Jesus as Savior. When you come to Jesus and you believe Jesus, what is next? What does that mean for you as a person when you say, I believe Jesus and I believe he will save me from my sin. I believe he is the Savior. Then what? What does that life look like? Jesus, and the Bible as a whole, in fact, never make a distinction between a believer in Christ and a disciple. We sometimes make these these distinctions that some can be a believer in Jesus Christ and have said that they're saved, but then we are not yet a disciple. We need to grow into being a disciple. The Bible never makes that distinction. For the Bible, to be a believer is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. There is no difference. They're interchangeable. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus considers you to have said, I will be a follower. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. The mission that Jesus gave us when he left this earth and he left the apostles to begin the the church and to grow and to, to expand through the world, the mission that he gave us to do was not to make converts. So he did not say, go into all the world and make believers out of people. The mission he left us was, go into all the world, make disciples. That's what he left us to do, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ. So in this passage, which we've just read, and we'll look at more through this morning, in this passage, Jesus is making it clear what it means for you to follow him. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Too many people, and by this I mean not just the prosperity gospel type areas or people that believe in that, but too many people believe that we're told that salvation is all goodness. That God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And in part, that's true. But only in part. See, there's much more to it than that. Salvation is not just that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Because that would mean scriptures like this need to be cut out. There is much, much more. And when we talk to people about what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ, when we share the gospel with people... When we leave the gospel at God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life type thing, we are doing them a great disservice. They need to know, like what Jesus tells us here, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What am I really signing up for? What am I really saying I'm going to follow Jesus about? We don't want to set people up for disappointment because we haven't given them the whole truth about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus isn't just an additive to our life. He is to be our life, our everything. So this morning, as we look at this idea of what it means to be, or being a disciple of Jesus Christ, we're going to look at what it requires. 
To follow Jesus, uh, Jesus as a disciple requires certain things. And here is the, the first of the things that we're going to see as we go through. To follow Jesus Christ requires changing your priorities. Changing your priorities. In these first verses we read here, verse 25 through verse 27, Jesus has turned to a great multitude that was with him while he was there at the, the banquet and, and on and he turns to them and he says, if anyone comes to me, and that's an invitation of salvation, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sister, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There are three things we're going to see here about how we need to change our priorities or what it means to follow Jesus Christ and how we see the world and live in the world. And the first is this, that we need to put God before others. God must always come before others. At first reading, for many people, these verses sound very harsh. And even as you read through these verses where he says to, to, to hate your family, they seem even to conflict with what Jesus himself has said before. Does God really want us to hate? Does he want us to hate people? What happened to this idea of, uh, of God being a loving God? And then here he's telling us that we need to hate. Well, there is no contradiction in the Bible it's true. God calls us to love people and to be a people of love. It's part of what defines who we are as Christians, that we are a loving people. We are to have a special love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But there is a call throughout the New Testament, throughout Scripture, which tells us that we're to love everyone. In fact, God's intent, as it describes here, and it talks more specifically here about family, God's intent, as he describes it for us in the Bible, for the family is to be a place of love. The family is to be a unit where there is love. A father is told that he needs to, to love and respect uh, his wife. And that is his duty. And with his children, he is to show his love to his children by teaching them and training them and, and, and not provoking them to anger. He is to be a good and loving husband and father to his children. A wife, we're told in Scripture as well, as it describes for us what it means to be married and to be a, a wife and mother, is said that they need to love and respect their husband. Show that same deference to teach and to, to raise their children in love and care. Children are, are said to, to honour and obey their, their parents in a spirit of love. So the whole context of how God defines and, and intends the family to be is to be a place of love and a, a, a place that nurtures and encourages love. This kind of love, this atmosphere of love in a family is even God's intent for families of unbelievers. This is how God intends families to be, places of love. Sadly, of course, belief in Jesus Christ can often cause division in families. And that was a, for Israel at this time, that was a very real situation. You know, for many of the people here that were listening to Jesus, and for many of them which would end up believing in Jesus and following him as disciples, they would be ostracized from their families put out from their family. So it would be a very real thing. 
So if Jesus says we're to love, but then we have verses like this, what does he mean? What does he mean in verses like this where he says to love? We are to love, and yes, we are to love others. But what he means here as he describes for us here is that we are to love others, but we are to love God more. Consider, and he did this, I'm sure, on purpose when he describes for us the attitude of family here. If there is anyone on earth that you love more dearly and deeply than anyone, who is it? It's your family. So here, the illustration, Jesus is taking us directly to the highest level of love we have on this earth, our family. And says, you love your family deeply, love me more. Love God more. We need to understand here that when he uses the term hate, it is used in a sense which isn't uncommon through the times and through the Bible, which is not an absolute sense, but a relative sense. We see it in the Bible often. It's not an uncommon thing. In this sense, the word hate is used in terms or to show preference. So I love this more than that, or this person I love more than that. It's a, a statement of preference so it's not an absolute term, but a relative term. We see it in places like when it speaks of Jacob's love for his wives, uh, Leah and, and Rachel, where he, he prefers Rachel over Leah. We see it in the same way, in, used in the same way, when it talks about God's attitude towards Jacob and his brother Esau. The Bible speaks of God hating Esau but loving Jacob, which speaks to us not that he despised Esau, but rather for the birthright, he preferred Jacob over Esau. It's a relative term. That is, his love for or his choosing of one in comparison to the other is vastly different. Vastly different. So Jesus isn't saying don't love other people. That's not the statement he's making here. What he is saying is love me more than anyone else. Love me vastly different to anyone else in this life. When I married Kirsten, one of the promises I made in my, in, in my vows to Kirsten was that I promised to love her above all others. That is, in this life, my love for Kirsten is to be vastly greater than my love for anyone else. And this is essentially what Jesus is telling us here. Our love for God is to be vastly greater than our love for anyone, even our most cherished people on this earth. Our love for them should seem insignificant when compared to our love for Jesus. So while at first it may look and we may read it and say, well, that sounds harsh to hate. The reality is it's probably a lot more difficult than we initially thought. A lot more intense than we even thought at the beginning. Jesus says when he talks about uh, defining or, or bringing all of the law and the prophets down to two main categories, to two main truths. 
Jesus says the first of all the commandments, the greatest of all the commandments is to love your God. But that's not just the statement he made, isn't it? He didn't just say the first and greatest commandment is to love your God. The statement is, love your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and all of your strength. That is, you are to love God supremely with every part of your being. He is to be your supreme love. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to say, I will love God more than anyone. More than anyone in this world. I will love my God. We need to put God before others. The second priority we see in here is not just to put God before others, but to put God before self. He continues, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also. Love for God here. So he's taken us to, when it comes to other people, the greatest love we have on this earth, which is our family. Now he steps it up. And he says, now let's take it to the one person in this world you love more than anyone yourself says so i'm telling you you need to love me more than anyone so let's crank it up the next level now you don't just need to love me more than anyone you need to love me more than you love yourself it is like the one before when jesus says here we are to pursue our good god is not calling for self-hatred Often Christians are said to to be like that because we talk about sin. We talk about how we need to see ourselves as being sinners so that we can find God's love. And we talk about our unworthiness, that, that what we receive from God we do because we are unworthy. And some people see that and think, well, to, to believe that I'm a sinner and to believe that I am unworthy is, is kind of a self-hatred. Well, these, these things, these, this idea of being a sinner and being unworthy of God, they don't speak to our value. They're not value statements about how much we are worth or who we are as people. See, the second part of the commandment which Jesus told us, when he brings it all down to two things, the first, to love our God supremely above all else with every part of our being. And the second, he says, is like it, you shall love your neighbor, and he assumes here a certain truth as yourself. This, we have a love for ourselves. And the Bible speaks to us that we are to have a care and a concern for ourselves. We are to pursue our good. Your God calls each of us to look after ourselves, to pay attention to ourselves physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We are supposed to feed ourselves physically and spiritually. We are supposed to do that well and and right. We are supposed to do that, feeding ourselves physically and spiritually, so that we can benefit others around us and be of benefit to those around us. You should be... As a child of God, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be growing and inputting good into your life and growing in godliness. So yes, pursue your good. But how is Jesus telling us here to pursue our good? By pursuing God's glory. 
We pursue our good by pursuing God's glory first. Prominently. Again, this hatred, this idea of hatred is a relative statement because it's all part of that same statement. I am to love God more than I love myself. My greatest good, what becomes good for me, what is the the best for me, is not pursuing my own pleasure. What is best for me, what is genuinely good for me, is pursuing God. Like we read in Philippians just a moment ago, Paul says, everything I had, I now count worthless. And I lay it behind me to pursue Jesus so that he is my all. My priorities need to shift from what makes me happy to what makes God happy. When I pursue God's glory first, I find my own joy. I find my own satisfaction there. So we need to change our priorities in that we need to have God above others, God above self, and thirdly, God before possessions. For this, we look down into verse 33. In verse 33, it says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciples. Again, similar sorts of questions rise here. And what does he mean by this? As we look at this and consider what he means by God before possessions, the first thing we realize is is this, that he is telling us that we need to release our hold on this life. To release our hold on this life. God is not telling us, and we've talked about this before, and the reality is the truth and the principles we're looking at here, we have looked at already in Luke. He's already gone through this. This is him taking all of these principles he's already talked about, putting into one one little section. He doesn't mean that we're to live in poverty. When he says here that we are to forsake or uh, give up or to renounce, the word literally means this, say goodbye to. That's what it means, say goodbye to. It implies an abandonment of things. To give up the right of ownership is what that word forsake means, to renounce, to give up. It means to give up our right of ownership to it. Everything we have, we're to let go of. We are, as we've said before, to live with open hands. Pastor John MacArthur, in his commentary on this, said this. What it means is to recognize that we are stewards of everything, and owners of nothing. That's what Jesus means when he says that we need to give up everything. It is, it is not that I have to give away everything, but rather the way I think about it. That the things that I have here on this earth are genuinely not mine. They're God's. He is the owner. I'm simply a steward. So I need to release it. Stop holding on to it as if it were mine. And live simply as if I'm being a steward of what I have been given. We need to release your hold on this life so that we can gain the treasure of eternal life. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and destroy 
and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. But where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or later, in Mark chapter 8, verse 36, he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Here, we are to change our priorities. We change our priorities at least in these three areas. God before others, God before self, and God before possessions. The second requirement that he gives us about what it is to be a disciple, not just to change our priorities, but to examine the cost. We need to be examining the cost of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. See, everything of value costs. Everything of value costs. But one thing that we see and one thing we do know is true about what God offers here and what he speaks of when he speaks about salvation here is that salvation doesn't cost you. So it's important to understand here that what Jesus is speaking about here is not he is not saying how to be saved. This is not a a statement of how you need to be saved. This is a statement and this is words about what it means when you are a follower of Jesus Christ. So he's not saying if you want eternal life, you must first change your life. No, true salvation changes your life. When you believe Jesus, he changes your attitude so that your desire is for a change of priorities. Your desire is for different pursuits. Salvation from sin is a genuine gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Salvation comes not because of what I do, but because of what Jesus has done. I must believe that he is God. I must believe that I am a sinner and that Jesus came to die in my place to pay for my sin. Salvation doesn't cost you, but following Jesus will. The result of believing Jesus will cost. There is a cost to saying, I'm taking your gift and now I'm going to live with it. Simply accepting Jesus as Savior doesn't mean living for Jesus and following him is easy. The, the process to begin with is easy. I believe. It's, that's, in, in that sense, it's, it's simple. But the living of it is not. See, and here's the, here's the beauty. Here is the grace in these words. Jesus isn't trying to trick us. He's not trying to gain a big crowd by telling us all the good bits of what it is to follow Jesus. This, his message isn't just come to my dinner and see the bounty of what I have to offer. See the, the gloriousness of eternal life and the abundance of that life. And then we say, yes, I want that abundant life. I want the glory of that. I want to escape hell and punishment. And we jump in and then we find out that there's more to it. 
Jesus doesn't need a crowd. He's already got a crowd. So he's not trying to, to pander to the crowd so he can get more and have a, have a great big congregation. He's telling us the truth from the beginning. Yes, I am offering you the bounty and the blessing of eternal life and salvation. But to follow me comes with a cost. To believe Jesus is to transform your life. I desperately, desperately want people to believe in Jesus. But I want them to believe in the real Jesus. Not a fantasy Jesus. I don't want to go out and persuade and convince people to believe in a Jesus who they think is only goodness and ease. I want people to believe in the real Jesus who says, yes, I give you abundance and glory and goodness, but it's not easy. I want people to know the truth of what it really means to follow Jesus, to be a believer in Jesus Christ. See, Jesus tells us here that everything of value costs, and it's going to cost us to follow Jesus. But what we also know about Scripture and what he tells us about the cost is that Jesus is worth the cost. He is worth the cost. I've given you just a small list there just to kind of summarize because I want you to know when we talk about following Jesus, it does. It genuinely does mean giving up things. It means I need to put off the sin. There are things in my life, you know, as, as a natural person who's living in sin, there are things in my life which are sinful, which I enjoy. But to believe, be a believer in Jesus Christ, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, the disciple means those things which I enjoy but which are sin, I need to get rid of, to put off. I need to surrender my will to his there are going to be to follow jesus there are going to be things in this life people in this life activities in this life where i'm going to need to separate from and say i can't do that anymore i can't be there anymore i can't associate there anymore because of what it means to be jesus and then the resultant persecution that will come with that to be a believer in jesus christ to be a follower in jesus christ puts me right in the center of the battle with satan it's not going to be easy. But Jesus tells us the cost is worth it. When you follow Jesus, yes, there is a lot you must give away. There is a lot of cost that will come. But when you believe Jesus, when you follow Jesus, there is also much you gain. And if we were to do a, a cost-benefit analysis of salvation, we would find that the benefit of salvation vastly outweighs the cost. Consider for a moment just a few of the benefits that Jesus gives us at salvation. The very love of God. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. The forgiveness of God in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We receive by being a follower of Jesus Christ, the presence of God. Or do you not know that your body, that is every believer, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? We receive the great and glorious promises of God. 
or, uh, in, in 2 Peter verse 1, 2-4, he tells about the glorious gifts we are given. Or the joy and peace of God. Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Or the hope of God. Romans 15 and verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to follow Jesus. We need to examine the cost. That is, know what it is going to cost me. And lastly, when Jesus tells us about what it is to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, so what it means when I accept Jesus Christ as Savior, what is he expecting? What does it mean beyond that is this, that there is a long-term commitment. It requires long-term commitment. Verse 33 or verse 34, he says, Salt is good, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Do we continue this? He continues this idea about the quality of life. See, it's an interesting statement, and this statement seems kind of odd, really, as it gets here, because we're talking about other, other things and, and other ways of life, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about salt, and it doesn't seem to, to fit. There's something that uh, seems a little bit odd about this in relation to the rest of the passage. But the idea, even, is a little foreign to us, but the idea here is that he is continuing the same theme, which is about a quality of life, that the life of a disciple is a good life. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ, yes, while it has cost, is a life which is good and glorious. It is one that lasts. Everyone will live forever. Believer or unbeliever, everyone lives forever. The difference is the quality of that life. What will that forever life look like for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life when he speaks about that kind of everlasting life what does he mean and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also that's the quality of life that's the aim that's the goodness of eternal life as a believer, that we will be with God. There is this quality of life, this eternal life, but this eternal life, we said, is an abundant life. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, he says in John 10. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. See, that is a life that is full, a life that is rich, a life that is lived as it's meant to be. That's what it means by abundant life. That is, it is a life which is so completely full and so completely satisfied because we have everything we were meant to have and we know all of God we were meant to know. So he speaks here about this. It is a quality of life, but also it is a life of purpose. That is, it is a life which is useful. 
Now, how salt loses its flavour here, and there's, uh, there are reasons and explanations that come from, it, from the area, but how it loses its flavour and, and its ability here is irrelevant. You know, I've heard sermons where we spend far too much time determining why Jesus says that the salt loses its flavour. The reality is, it doesn't matter how the salt loses its flavour or its effectiveness here. The point is, God wants you to have a life that is genuinely useful, wholly good. That's what he wants for his disciples. A life that fulfills its given purpose. Jesus isn't looking for temporary followers. He isn't looking for followers that today say, I'm all in, and tomorrow say, it's a bit tough. I'm out. He's looking for followers that commit. So when we talk to people about what it is to be a believer, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we're talking to them about a life change. To follow Jesus forever, but to find a life which is useful. And in so doing, finding a life which is satisfying. No, it's not easy. The life of a disciple of Jesus Christ is not easy. And we're kidding ourselves if we think it is. But nothing of value is without cost, is it? Nothing of value ever comes free. Here we have a life which is completely, totally satisfying. Everything that needs to be done has been done for you to have salvation, to be saved from sin. You can know forgiveness and you can know eternal life right now. It starts by believing Jesus is Savior. But that is not the end of the matter. It's simply the beginning of the matter. It is the beginning of a life of discipleship. God wants you to know the cost. He wants you to know from the beginning what it genuinely means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want you like the man who built a building but didn't think through Start following Jesus and then go, I didn't realize it would be this hard. And then reject him. He wants us to understand. It's not easy, but every bit of it is worth it. Believer, if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you are not becoming a disciple. You are a disciple. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you said, I believe you. You are Lord and Savior. You have said, I'm a disciple. I am following. It is not a second effort to be a disciple. It is what you were saved to. So we need to examine our priorities. What is it that we're living for? Is Jesus just the bonus in our life? Someone to pray to when we need help, a source of good things? Or is he our life? Be salt. Be good salt. That is useful and satisfying. Let's pray.
Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. Today's text is very challenging, but also, dear God, very encouraging. We pray that it would do both. That it would challenge us to be the disciples that we have committed to be, to follow you, that our priorities would be right. We would be living for you to have a life which is useful and satisfying and glorifying to you in every way. So that, dear God, we can go out and effectively make disciples. Lord, we pray that that would be true of us today. That we would grow as a people, that we would grow as a church because we are making disciples for Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.